0: Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary.
1: Hi, my name is Bill Hendricks. I'm the Executive Director for Christian Leadership at the Hendricks Center. And I want to welcome you to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. And today, the issue that we want to take a look at is what we call a new vision for sharing Christ, and we've got two people that are eminently qualified to help us with this. First of all, I'd like to introduce uh, David Kinnaman, who is the president of the Barna Group, and he is coming to us uh, online from sunny Southern California. David, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. It's actually a little foggy out this morning, but it'll probably <laughs> burn after, after a while.
1: <laughs> well. When I think of Barna, uh, I, I, the picture that comes to my mind, you know, we talk about the body of Christ, and I imagine people go into, say, a hospital and an ICU or, you know, some place where they get hooked up to all these electrodes and monitors and, you know, and there's guys running around in white. Lab coats that are got all these readouts and all this data, and they're now interpreting what's going on in this body, and that's what I envision Barna being. Is that is that anywhere close to what what you do every day?
2: Uh, all that's true, except for there's no lab coats. Okay, uh-huh. look into that.
1: <laughs> and then back here uh, in the at, at the ranch uh, in Dallas, I've got Nika Spalding with me yeah. today. Nika, welcome. Nika is the resident. A theologian at a local church here called St. Jude Oak, Oak Cliff, and uh, it's church plant. Uh, how 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 long you all been going?
3: Yeah, we're a toddler, so we're coming up on two years in October. So learning well, to great. walk, so Excellent. very exciting. Yeah.
1: So you're paid to sit around and think about theology. Yeah,
3: uh, it's a cozy ivory tower they've built for me. Uh, no, uh, the title means I do all the midweek theology Bible studies and then participate in Sunday worship as well. Gotcha. Yeah.
1: And one of the reasons we asked you specifically to be with us today, Nika, is because you uh, identify as a millennial. Yeah. Now you're at the upper end of that, yeah. as I understand Yeah. That. I might
3: get kicked out at, at some point, but <laughs> we born in 85, and so feel like I still have a little bit of that anti-establishment, Gen X in me, but um, but yeah, I mean, at the top end of that millennial and quickly realized people love talking about me and my people, and so I figure I should probably learn about myself as well. There so, you go. Yeah.
1: And David, uh, I can't remember, did, did did you tell at a conference recently you're a Gen X guy or you study? Yeah. Okay.
2: Yeah, I'd be a Gen Xer, so I'm 45, All right. and uh, I, I think the whole idea of generations is such an interesting one. I mean, of course, even scripture includes this notion of generation to generation, but, you know, so yeah, I'm, I'm a Gen Xer. Boomers, the, the, the first really named generation, uh, kind of got it started, got the party started, the generational party. And uh, then Gen X, then Millennials, then Gen Z. Uh, of course, sociologists we just kind of make this up, but <laughs> Right. Right. It's, yeah. it's a it's a helpful frame of reference. I think that an interesting little note is that the reason that um, uh, generations really emerged was after the world after World War II. Um, you know, of course, they were the name generation for, born between forty six and sixty four. Uh, all you know, sort of like there was peace in the land and people could yeah, could right. you know sort of procreate. But it was, um, but it was actually driven by marketing. That mm-hmm. uh, basically marketers couldn't spend enough money to, to to reach everyone, so they decided to sort of carve out a group of people. Uh, it was obviously a sociological and birth rate phenomenon, but also uh, something of a, a business-driven decision that we would try to market to certain kinds of people based on their age group. Mm-hmm. And and that's actually, I think, you know, important for our discussion today too, because. There's a real marketing sensibility. Um, I, I'm a sort of a generational expert, but I'm also I get a little nauseated by it when we think about it, just explicitly for the purposes of marketing to a generation, um, for the purposes of you know sort of like packaging Jesus to them, right, uh, based on their sensibilities. So it's a it's a great it's a great it's a great conversation. I think we're about to have.
1: Well, and so I'm obviously the old guy in the room. Uh, I'm I'm 64, so that qualifies me right in the middle of being a boomer. And uh, I want all of our listeners to know that none of us pretends to speak definitively for the generation yeah. in which we were born. You know, nobody gets to choose when they're going to be born in this world. Uh, obviously, we become familiar with kind of how our own generation thinks, and mm. and that can speak into things. but. Uh, uh, yes, why do we start with this whole generational thing, as, as David kind of alluded to? We want to talk about this concept of sharing Christ, and the sort of technical term has always been evangelism. And uh, evangelism, uh, much ink has been spilt uh, by theologians down through the centuries to understand what the gospel really is, and I do think that it's relevant uh, that, that, at least in my lifetime, the concept of sharing the gospel uh, has come much more to the forefront of how Christians, and particularly evangelicals, and you can see a tie between evangelical and evangelism uh, that that's a very important um, activity for Christians to do and yet traditionally uh, there was what we might call proclamation evangelism there's a set of propositions about uh, who God is and, and who humans are and the condition spiritually that humans are in, that they're lost, they need a Savior, and then what God has done to provide that Savior in Jesus, and then to put one's faith in what Christ did there on the cross to atone for our sins, uh, and, and thereby begin to experience this new life that Christ has brought us, this new relationship with God as a result of that, and that somebody needs to assent to that and believe in that and put their faith and trust in that, and then begin to follow this Jesus. And that was something that drove what we might call the, the international uh, foreign missions uh, <laughs> empire, if I can pa- call it that, for countless generations. Mm-hmm. Uh, many, many uh, people went from certainly the United States and the West to other parts of the world to take that message. And uh, they did it uh, sometimes well, uh, many times not so well, many times they had unintended consequences. But the point was they were driven by this sense that humans are lost apart from Christ and we've got to let them know that there's a Savior. And then we come to life as it's lived now and as our culture's changed. and. There seems to be some shift in in that approach to evangelism and how it's done. And David, I'm going to go ahead and turn to you first, because you've got a bunch of research that Barna has done on this that I think would be very helpful for all of us to, to, to hear, to set the table for this conversation.
2: Great. I'd be happy to. Um, we've done a, a big study. We've done multiple studies uh, through the years. Uh, you know, the company, for those that don't know, uh, started by George Barna in 1984. Uh, so we've got uh, 35 years of tracking sociologically uh, through through the through research uh, what Americans believe and how they practice their faith. And increasingly, we're doing now more and more global stuff as well. Um, in the last few years, we've worked on a couple different projects, one with a, a partner called Lutheran Hour Ministries uh, called Spiritual Conversations in the Digital Age, and then uh, most recently uh, here in early 2019 with Alpha, uh, a study called Reviving Evangelism, and so we've, this is the, the report that came from that, um, and we've really been able, I think, to map the, lam- the landscape of you know spiritual conversations today, and um, some of the different generational ideas about uh, evangelism. Um, We are increasingly seeing a kind of uh, antibody develop uh, in younger generations towards the concept of evangelism. They actually talk about their faith as they report talking about their faith more than older generations. Um, They're they're very spiritually oriented, they're very faith-oriented even in their conversations um, but they don't like the idea, even practicing Christian young people, don't like the idea of trying to convince somebody else to to change their faith or to become a convert to Christ. So it's a lot about the... the the hesitance, I think, is a lot about um, this. Well, we we could think about what that is, but 47% of practicing Christian millennials say it's wrong to try to evangel, evangelize someone uh, to, to have them become a Christian, even though 94% say, they believe that one of the best things in life a person could do is to become a Christian um, and to follow Jesus. So these the interesting paradoxes uh, that I think this generation is living in, and I'd, I'd actually love to you know learn learn from you guys more about that today, too. I mean, I, I'm an analyst, so I can report the numbers, but the the how and the why and what that means, I mean, I, I always think that our research is best served as a, a point of discussion starting. Uh, but that was the real shocking statistic was that 47 percent Ah, uh, practicing Christian millennials who, at the same time, they believe that it's one of the best things a person can do to become a Christian, uh, say that it's actually wrong to uh, try to convert someone. So, um, I think there's all sorts of interesting pressures and cross currents today uh, that is making uh, the perception of evangelism different. And it's it's I think obviously, um, you know, it's a point of disequilibrium. I think within the church is like, well, who's going to who's going to be the effective evangelist of the future?
3: yeah, that's really good. i I spent a lot of my time studying millennials, one being one of them, but also I'm planning a church that heavily skews towards millennials, and we were probably over fifty percent millennials in our church. and you guys put out a report in twenty thirteen that says is evangelism going out of style? And it was more of just a broad conversation about evangelism. But in that report, it was interesting. Millennials reported higher levels of talking and sharing about their faith. And so here was this one data point that I was like, All right, we're doing some things right here. We're sharing our faith. So I mean truly I was floored when twenty nineteen rolled around and it said, you know, forty seven percent are now saying it's it's not just Not that I don't evangelize, it's wrong to evangelize. And I began asking myself and started talking with folks when this study came out, what happened between 2013 and 2019, and and interestingly enough, I think the election in 2016 played a big part in that. What's interesting is so many of the young people in our church today they do want their friends to know Jesus Christ. But the fear of being lumped in with some folks who maybe are more aggressive in their evangelism tactics or um, or maybe more transactional in their conversations about Jesus has caused them to want to separate from that group. Um, I've, I've So many young people today are like, I'm not an evangelical. I mean, I still hold to all the values, but I'm not an evangelical. And I'm going, okay, maybe we need to start defining these terms a little bit more clearly because I think maybe we shouldn't give up on the term i'm not sure but you you are still sharing your faith with your coworkers you're bringing them i mean our young people are bringing folks to church every weekend at our new church and and yet they also want to distance themselves from maybe some of the older models of evangelism and so it's been a really interesting paradigm shift for me as a pastor trying to encourage people to share their faith this is a this is an important part of who we are as believers and what we've been commissioned to do and yet, they don't want to do it like their grandparents did. They don't want to do it like their parents did. And I'm like, okay, well, how do you want to do it then? Um, and and that, that was such a staggering statistic when that study came out. And I don't know that I have all the right answers, but it does seem like a new wave of evangelism is going to be coming in, in the, new, the new wave of young people coming in. Will
1: Well, you put your finger on a very, I think, critical point that David also – Had referenced uh, in what he had to say, and that is, uh, let's take the term uh, evangelical. You know, where that actually came from historically, uh, there was a split between what was called the modernists and the fundamentalists back in roughly the 1920s. And uh, the fundamentalists believed in five fundamentals uh, of the faith, and uh, we won't go into all of those, but the fundamentalists tended to create what might be called culture wars. It was, it was Christ against culture. You know, the, 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 the view was that the culture's uh, retreating from God and we're going to fight against that. And the evangelicals grew up in about the 40s and, and 50s as somewhat of a, a reaction to that to say, let's not fight culture wars. Let's engage culture meaningfully and let's actually have civil conversation about important things which is fine. And evangelism was a big part of that. But then, as David referenced, um, in in about the 1980s, marketing and demographics cropped up and the generational thing, just as he said. And suddenly, uh, with political research and analytics going on, there was a new category created which was not a theological term. It was was a, a marketing term or a demographics term for political research of evangelicals. And and once you do that, you start to figure out what are the traits of these people, and, and next thing you know, you have a a profile that was very different uh, in many ways, certainly in spirit, from what was real, originally envisioned by evangelicals. So now we have this big problem today, oh, you're one of those evangelicals. <laughs> and, that, and that creates a host of assumptions about the person that may be mis- you know, stereotypes. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I think I think you're, you're, the idea of the overlay of um, po- political and sociological categories—you um, you, know—you're you're exactly right. Um, there's a a lot of research that's done around elections today. Asks people, are you a born again or evangelical Christian? Uh, yes or no, and that's a sort sort of it's a, it's a, it's a, actually a, it offends me not only as a Christian but as a survey researcher uh, because it is a it's a double barreled question yeah. and it it's you know it just cracks me up it's like are you born again or evangelical yes or no and and so a lot of or or even just the fact that you 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 lump white evangelicals uh, into one group um, and analyze them differently now. Um, there's a lot of uh, evidence, obviously, in our culture today that white evangelicals are different in a lot of critical areas, and and you know white Christianity has a lot of um, uh, a lot of explaining to do. Um, it, you know, it, at its worst, when it when it uh, encourages you know sort of the, the, the wrong mindedness yes. uh, of of our of our times. But um, what's interesting is a lot of the political analysis really looks at at, at white evangelicals as distinct from. You know, black cons- black Christians because they do vote very differently, but they happen to believe the same things right. theologically, right? So they're different political animals, but they're not different theological animals. Um, and so, a lot of those um, a lot of those categories, I think, you know, there's just we live in a kind of a blender society where you sort of push the smoothie button and everything just gets swirled up. and And I actually think this is one of the critical challenges for today's. Uh, next generation of Christians, is we find that they're they're really interested in understanding um, why Catholics and Protestants are con- considered to be different. Um, they don't really have a good sense of their de- own denominational history, or why denominations split off from one another, or why different groups have different interpretations. Um, I actually think um, that one of the key things we should be teaching in our in our youth groups is a sort of history class, a mm. uh, sort of theological history, um, because we just don't we, like no person can know who they are without understanding the family from which they come, just biologically, uh, on some level. Um, obviously, people that are ad- adopted or who have, you know, like even some some ki- friends of my kid of my kids uh, our literal test tube baby. So we live in a very different world than Mm -hmm. we ever have before. Um, And so, but no person can really understand who they are without understanding their biological roots or their family roots. And I think we have a real crisis um, in this generation of not knowing, uh, it's not because they haven't been willing to learn, it's because we haven't had the patience to teach them and explain this to them. Uh, We have a real crisis of them not knowing from whence they come and for, from sort of what theological traditions have have contributed to who they are, like why evangelism is important, is really a story going back, you know, obviously to the book of Acts, uh, but it also has a, a, a very, um, you know, a specific connection to the what's happened in the last few decades. And I think a lot of the reasons that young Christians reject modern forms of evangelism as like a saying that there'll be a whole new kind of thinking about evangelism, because I think there's a real there's been a real collateral damage perhaps when we go through um, uh you, you know this process of um, uh, you, um, you, you know s- s- sort of the, the the mass production of evangelism big events and you know sort of mailers and you know sort of movies that are probably not that great movies but they're <laughs> kind of meant to be. <laughs> You know, sort of evangelistic pieces. It's
3: kind of you to say it that way.
2: <laughs> uh, so, uh, anyhow, I'm, uh, um, I think that's part of what's what's the challenge is we don't people then react they 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 glom onto these words like evangelism and evangelicals, and there's uh, there's a much more political they're, they're much more understood in the political and sociological frame than yeah. they are in a theological or what is my history what is my responsibility as a Christian to go out and share this good news um, in a way that isn't about a cultural um, imperialism right that's actually one of the things we see in a lot of our research is a lot of people um, they 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 associate conversion efforts with a type of cultural imperialism mm-hmm. yeah. so yeah uh, those are some of the things we're seeing in the in the data.
3: Yeah, I think you're so. I mean, I can every data point you're offering, I can give you anecdotal stories. Even in, we were nine months into our church plant. We belonged to a specific denomination. Um, that there were just some some things that we were doing locally that our denomination didn't didn't love, and so uh, we more or less were asked to leave. And so we left a denomination. Now, in nine months into a church plant, that could be devastating for a lot of church plants. None of our young people cared. Like they didn't even realize we were part of a denomination for the most part when we began. And so when we explained to them we're now going to be non-denominational, they were like, we weren't the whole time. I mean, there was just such a. And so some of our older folks, of course, that was a that was a much different conversation over coffee. Okay, explain to me why we're leaving. What are going to be the tenets of our faith? Where do we stand on infant baptism? Where I mean, all these questions that you would anticipate. And yet none of our young people, I don't even know if today most of our young people could tell you the history of even our church because they just seem disinterested. One of the things that I've noticed so much from evangelistic efforts, too, and I even had a hard conversation with a with a local author because they're trying to put out gospel material and they're trying to reach millennials and Gen Zers. And they're asking me to consult on it, And the, and the part one is, you're broken. And I'm like, ooh. That's not maybe, actually maybe our not story. not a card to lead with. Yeah, and I'm like, well, that's not our story. Our story began really with a triune God, and then creation, and then the beauty that is humanity made in God's image, and and we belong to something bigger than ourselves. And this idea of using story as part of evangelism is getting a lot of traction in our church, where people want to know what they belong to because. I have so many young folks that go, I think maybe I know where I stand on abortion, but I got to be honest with you. Everybody that I know that's anti-abortion, I don't agree with them, so I'm not sure I care anymore. And I'm going, okay, this is not a political issue. This is a theological and moral issue, and God has something to say to this. Would you like to know what God has to say about it? And doing that divestment away from politics has been really healing for some of our young folks because they tend to see so many of these issues as political issues rather than moral and theological. And they don't they, – I mean, I was shocked, David, when your, when your research said that 51% of people in the church didn't know there was a Great Commission. And I'm like – what are we doing? Like, if you don't know that, I mean, of course they don't know that evangelism is important. And so I think we have some theological deficits within our church that is then being filled because the vacuum is going to be filled with something. And I think so much political rhetoric and so much vitriol online is filling that space and it's causing people to form and shape opinions about deeply moral issues that God should have the first and final say in that young people today are going, I'm not hearing these things from the pulpit, but I am hearing it from Twitter. And if that's what I have to sound like to be pro life, then I don't, I don't know if I don't I'm, I'm pro life. Right. And and I'm going, no, I think you you probably are pro life, honestly. And then you, you have the, the conversation about who you are as a people, where you belong, how you've been grafted into this family. And I think we're missing some things if we're not gonna start having those conversations in evangelistic effort rather than Here's it. I couldn't believe people still use tracks. I mean, I couldn't believe that when I saw that in y'all's data. And uh, (laughs) I always, my friends joke, if there's a massive group of people and I'm in it, I will be the one singled out for street evangelism. So I must look like a sinner. I'm not sure what that look is, but but I think about that. Of even as a believer, as a pastor, as someone who is in full-time ministry, I'm sometimes like, whoa, that would not work on me if I didn't. Hey, I love you
0: guys. Calm down, you know. And so, so. Listen to these conversations and more by searching Grace Enough Podcast on your favorite listening app or by visiting graceenoughpodcast.com
1: So one of the distinctions that there's a thread here that's that's I think interesting uh, that I'm hearing you know we use the term evangelism and you know, there, there's theology involved in evangelism, but then there's also sort of what we might call strategy or approach involved in evangelism. Evangelism is both a, a message, mm-hmm. and then there's a method. And again, if we go back historically, and I'll say, you know, to the boomers and really before the what we might call mass evangelism. I mean, we think of Billy Graham and stadiums. Yep. Uh, you know, we think of television. Uh, films, uh, you know, stuff on TV, and then of course the the all time classic, um, Bill Bright and, and the Four Spiritual Laws, and I mean at the time, to- and Bill Bright had a background in marketing, and and you 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 sit you stand there in the fifties and the sixties and you go, wow, we got millions of kids going to college, they need the gospel we we, we got to give them something that's simple something they can understand quickly and most importantly something that could spread virally mm. they didn't have that term then sure. but you know overnight and so let's 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 take all this theological stuff and boil it down to the essence and then a simple method to mm. you know have you heard the four spiritual laws and similar things have come you know the Evangel Cube and the the wordless book and and uh, the jesus film and Listen, we're not knocking any yeah, of that, sure. okay? Right. Well, what I'm hearing, though, is the times have changed, and it's fascinating that if we look at the great marketers in our culture, Johnson & Johnson, Apple, uh, others that could be mentioned, um, they've shifted in how they market because they know that the old mass approaches don't work. You've right. got to, in a sense, mass customize everything, right? You've got to go as as far down to the individual level as possible. And once again, the church finds itself having to sort of catch up with the culture in not to change the gospel, not to change the theology, but a different approach or methodology perhaps, a new approach or a a timely approach, if I can call it that way, and therefore an effective approach in bringing this truth to people. Is that?
3: Yeah, 100%. So much is interesting, even looking at the trends of moving from a guilt innocence culture into an honor same culture, and really the advent of social media, I think, is just pushing us in that direction. Mm. And so, some of those method, and again, I, the, heaven's going to be full of people who are grateful for Bill Bright and tracks and Absolutely. things like that, but and Billy Graham. That's right. But now, when you talk about sin, it used to be this external thing that you did, and now, I mean, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to see that Brene Brown's TED Talk on shame is one of the most widely viewed. I mean, shame is the conversation I'm having with millennials over and over again. I am a mess up. I am broken. And a really quick mass marketing is not going to convince somebody in five minutes that what Jesus did on the cross is sufficient to transform them into a, into a new person, into the righteousness of Christ is, is imputed to you. And so these quick hey, we're going to talk about atonement, we're going to talk about justification, and we're going to talk, you good, you good, you good, you're in, you're in, you're in. When people are coming and going, no, I'm deeply broken, and I'm not sure a five-minute conversation is going to convince me that Jesus has a solution for what I'm feeling.
1: Well, actually, that sounds like progress to me. Yeah. Because if people start out believing, I'm a mess, I need help. I mean, we we can dispense with, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, not dispense with with the concept of sin, but I mean, we're we're already past the bad yep. news. There, they already know the good news. That's right, and or I, the bad news. I
3: agree, and I think people know that. I mean, I think um, the young people I'm talking to today, they might, you know, there's even this phenomenon going on with Instagram that you have like sort of your curated Instagram where everything's nice, and then you have like your real Instagram where. You're not looking so great after a Friday night, and things are broken, and you have literally these both worlds that people are curating, and I think these conversations that I'm having, they they the difference is not that now I'm convincing them of their sin. The difference is the length of time I need to spend with them to pastorally care for them to understand that Jesus is is deeply concerned about these things that they're going through mm. that's going to take time and the mass marketing is Doesn't not like working time. it's right. the it's and you know as a pastor who I went from a mega church to what I call my mini church Right. and I understand that when you've got thousands of women you're trying to teach the bible i understand programming I, I don't know of a different way of doing it in a mega church in terms of getting the bible into people's hands and education but when I'm spending time with these young folks, it is laborsome. It is multiple conversations. It's relationally and driven, That's too. exactly right. And I really know what they're going through. And so, I'm so grateful for my education here at DTS. And I don't mean that just because I'm sitting here in this building, but there are concepts in our theology like union with Christ and the Trinity that I don't hear getting enough playtime that Mm -hmm. to say that you're united to Christ and ushered into the Trinity is a profound idea that you can't do in five minutes that is deeply comforting to people to understand they belong and they should walk in their belongingness. And David, I'm going to pitch to you. I would love for y'all to do a huge global study with the Ligonier people who keep doing the state of theology because I laughed at when they, you know, their 2018 study says that... 51% 51% of people believe that God accepts the worship of any religious group. And I'm like, well no wonder we're not evangelizing people of different faiths. We think God's already good with it. And and so I'm sitting here going, "Oh my gosh, we are we have a theological depth of about an inch when it comes to evangelism at times, and I think that's going to have to change. That pastors are going to have to pull deeply from their theological toolboxes and say, it, this idea of a quick justification conversation, I think that day's gone, and I think instead we're going to have to spend time really unpacking these, being stewards of the mysteries of God, as Paul would say, hmm. and really leaning into some of these profound concepts because I think that's what people are going to need
1: moving forward. David, is your research showing uh, what uh, Nica has, has affirmed here that, uh, by and large, millennials um, assert from the get-go? You know, look, I'm a, I'm a broken person. I, I really need help. I'm, I'm a mess.
2: It's an interesting mix. Uh, they they do. I think part of what I hear uh, and is saying is that they are more realistic about the language that they use um, and and about the problems of of like sort of the human condition. So, for example, uh, one just readily apparent uh, example for me is as a researcher when I first started, you couldn't ask about sexuality, about pornography, uh, about. Really, I mean, it's like 25 years ago, 24 years ago when I started here at Barna. You know, there's some topics that were very taboo. Mm-hmm. Um, and now we ask, we did a study called the porn phenomenon uh, and... Um, I think 90 we asked it was an online survey That's part of the reason why you can ask about more anonymous oriented things like that as opposed to just through telephone interview But the culture has shifted so we're in a much more radically transparent era and so people it's like 93% of people who we said Hey, we're gonna ask you about things like pornography. Do you agree to continue to, to take the survey? 93% of the response respondents went through that those questions mm. around a whole range of things about Sexual arousal and when they watch pornography and it it's really remarkable. I mean, wow. the, the the representativeness of that, um, um, and I think that's a good example of what is saying that this generation is is like. Okay, well, let's just have the conversation because we 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 there's no no topics that's off limits, yeah. um, and and they see the systemic challenges that. Um, I call our current context digital Babylon. Um, mm. when I'd sort of like that we're we're in a new screen age, right. and so they're seeing on their smartphones. <coughs> excuse me. Um, you know, not only. Um, uh, you, you know, sexuality and pornography. Google is their sex educator and their, you know, relationship coach. And, you know, I've got friends who are telling us, telling me that they're, you know, their kids are using Google to say like, you know, signs that I'm depressed. And so they're, they, they're more aware. I mean, the idea of mental health and anxiety, they're more aware of you know, just the challenges that that people go through. I mean, I'm on the board at a university and the level of tracking of students um, in terms of their mental health Mm. and their capabilities of just making it through college. I mean, when I was in school, I mean, just 25 years ago, like it's just sort of like if you can find your way to the cafeteria, you're going to be fine. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So I think there's a lot of really good stuff uh, that has emerged in this generation, their awareness of human suffering and and mental health and you know lots of those those challenges one of the interesting things is at the same time that that is true there is this interesting sort of um resistance to the notion that they're themselves flawed and and Chris Pratt, uh, who's a, you know famous actor, in the uh, Jurassic World. Um, I'm sure you did in uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. He did a a, um, a speech accepting, I think it's like an MTV, you know, sort of like audience audience choice award. It's really a great little video because he goes through ten points, and it's a little mini sermon. Uh, that he gives like you know you have a soul you have to care for your soul it's this mm-hmm. really interesting thing is I really commend your listeners to go to, to go check it out because he also says he's like everyone's gonna tell you you're perfect but I'm here to tell you you're not perfect and it's okay not to be not to be perfect so there's this you know uh, like you're talking about it's sort of like there's this there's this awareness of um, presenting ourselves this pret- pretension of social media uh, there is a sense in this millennial and Gen Z culture, like you know, you deserve the trophy just for showing up. Um, and um, but that, but who gave the trophies? You know, yeah, who that's raised right. Them? I'm still you blaming
3: know? our parents for that one. So yeah.
2: <laughs> so it's so funny uh, the kinds of people that that you know, that I, I, uh, when when I'm asking an audience of mostly older pastors or whatever, you know, to blurt out their ideas about Generation Z or millennials all these negative words. But then yeah. after after they get that all out of their system. Uh, I'm like, all right, well, who raised this generation, yeah. right? <laughs> That's like what this. I'm saying. Yeah. I'm just grateful <laughs> Gen
3: Z is being studied, so I finally have someone to dump on because right. I didn't have that, and so it's good. Yeah, I think you're so right. I mean, there's this sense of depression and anxiety, those are those are always on limits, it uh-huh. feels like, to talk with millennials. Um, human sexuality and things like that, sometimes it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. I don't think that's wrong. And so that's really interesting, the inroads in terms of talking about what and what's interesting is I think the prevalence of anxiety and depression is so common that it's it's sort of just like, well, yeah, everybody's got that. And I saw this meme the other day where it was talking about my grandparents, they, like, they lean in, they look around, they're like, you know, so-and-so is in counseling. And then, you know, millennials are like, girl, my counselor told me to – you know, and I'm like, that is I most of my friends are in counseling. And we talk about it openly. And when I talk to my my mom about it, my mom's like, you guys are you share too much. And and so I think about that, of like, what is on limits? And so I think there are inroads to talk about human brokenness, but I do think there are times, though, that depending on um, the way you go about it, there might be some pushback of, yeah, I'm depressed, I'm anxious. Yes, I'm having you know one night stands over and over again, but I don't think those are correlative. And it's like, well, okay, they may right. not be correlated, but I think all of that should be fair game to talk about. But it is interesting what millennials will be willing to talk about, and then what are things that... Nah, that might be off limits. It's really fascinating,
2: yeah, right. Yeah. It's good,
1: well, it's interesting, naka, because I was going to ask you um okay, strategy approach evangelism, you know, in your perfect world, you know how would you set it up? How would you have a evangelistic conversation? Yeah. you basically said, um you were more inclined to start with this personal God who who exists and try and form, and you're invited into this perfect circle of love, yeah. as it were um you, you, the thing that strikes me about that is how it's 180 degrees in the opposite direction from perhaps the most dominant narrative. It's by no means the only narrative, but the dominant narrative that really millennials in particular have have grown up with. It's just in the water that, you know, you're here by random chance.
3: Yeah. You yeah. know, just
1: something crawled out of the yeah. primordial ooze back there. That's right. And, morphed into you yeah. and and your only real contribution if you want to look at it that way is to you know, contribute to the gene pool so that yeah. whatever survives us in two million years. Yeah, is, and hopefully is,
3: make a viral video at one point, and then that's your that's it. That's it. And yeah. I don't know how you yeah. build a
1: life of meaning and purpose. Yeah, out of you that. don't.
3: And I think that's where, you know, my head pastor is a guy twice my age, and he is still he's still a millennial whisperer. And one of the things that he one of the sermons that he did one time was he talked about we have done a disservice to millennials by not tethering them to a story, mm-hmm. to a place, to a people. Right. And we have to do that, and that is the number one sermon that they. And I think I do a pretty good job teaching other things midweek i think i've like razzle dazzled them and it's interesting we start every service the same way we say if nobody's told you today that they love you we do but more importantly god does and people love that and it's the simplest thing to just say god loves you and yet people go i don't hear that enough and i'm going Okay, that should be basic Christianity 101. And then for Martin to stand up on stage and say, "We have not done you a favor by allowing you to believe in in this idea that you you've come from nothing and you'll go to nothing instead of tethering you to something." And so many young people have latched onto that idea and and have come and said, "Who do I belong to? Where do I belong to?" And this idea of belonging, we are seeing. I mean, an epidemic of loneliness in this generation. Even though they're the most connected generation, and and it is unreal the amount of uh, just. I mean, even like it's interesting when you see that um, insurance companies are even starting to look into this idea of loneliness because it's costing them money because of yes. depression and yes. all that comes with depression and loneliness. And I'm and I'm telling people if you cannot tap into this sense of belonging with millennials, you may lose them. And they need to know they belong somewhere because of broken families and all of that.
1: So this opens up the door. To a whole new angle that is that is both theological as well as uh, strategic, I guess you'd say, and that is hospitality. That's right. Yeah. Because what I'm hearing in in your experience with the millennials you're working with, there is a deep desire, and this is true of I think all humans, but Mm -hmm. but we particularly see with millennials right now someone would you please attend to me Mm -hmm. would you see me as a person yeah not just as a number as a statistic as a you know an employee a worker you know that guy would somebody like see me for me good bad or ugly yeah and love me yeah and what you're saying is if we could get to that point with people. yeah, And hospitality and is I, all
3: about and that. And it's so subversive. You know, it's amazing how – I God has blessed me with a beautiful home in Oak Cliff, and I'm so grateful for that, and it was very apparent to me the reason for that, and that was to open my doors a lot to the mm. young people in our church. Mm. And We, I mean, Martin and I spend a lot of money on food, (laughs) and that's what we do. And we host people and we spend time with them. And it is, it is, I'm an introvert, it is tiresome. (laughs) It is, uh, there are times I'm like, I have to clean my house again. For I mean, I have a meeting tonight in my home with all of our home group leaders, and we're going to feed them and we're going to love on them, and they're going to stay late. They are,
1: you know, the uh, I believe the Italians have a phrase, uh, have a slogan that uh, a saying if I cannot know you unless I have dined with mm, you. Yeah. And I love that. You know, yeah. and by the same token I cannot know you unless I know your story. That's right. And what food seems to do is provide a space where we can get into story. That's right. And if I if I hear your story, you suddenly become a person to me. Yeah. And not just if I could Use this expression, not just a notch on my gun that mm. I want another convert to That's the right. faith. Yeah. Right? Yeah. No, this is a relational thing, yeah. which is very important. And
3: I'll love you even if you don't become a believer. Absolutely. And I'll love you if you never jump in full time at St. Jude. And, Absolutely. And, and we say that a lot when we pitch even volunteering opportunities. We remind the young people who are too busy, anyways, our love for you is not predicated on you saying yes to this. And you see them and they go, oh, and go, we love you. And so if you choose to jump in with us, Wonderful. We'll celebrate that. And if you don't, we're gonna tell you we love you the next time we see you. And it's so unnerving for them to hear that and, and disarming in a good way. Mm. And so that's I mean, and it takes time. Look, I, I understand the struggles of pastors who are busy, which is why I think we have to give ministry away to our boomers and our elders and our Gen Xers to say, guys, you have to open your home. You need to love on these millennials. I know they're a little weird. I know they bring their funky views into play. <laughs> they think uh, the same
1: about you. Yeah, they yeah, they totally do. But
3: you may just find that over dinner you have more in common than you realize and a longing to belong to each other in a way that you can
2: satisfy.
1: David, I'm just curious, do you have any research on hospitality?
2: We actually have quite a bit. Um, A big study we did uh, called um, the Households of Faith, um, where we looked at spiritually vibrant households and and sort of sort of the the conditions in which faith was really growing, and um, we we expected that it would be a lot about devotional activities, and it did and it was, but it was also around hospitality. Mm. So the the most vibrant households were both spiritually devotional. They read the Bible. They talked about God. They 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 did spiritual things, but they were also opening up their homes. They um, they were very hosp- hospitable in a lot of the ways that they oriented themselves. And they also had a lot of fun together. Uh, it wasn't just about doing spiritual things. Um, and so that was one, one instance. Um, in a lot of different places, we've seen kind of the role of hospitality. Um, even in this a Reviving Evangelism report that I was telling about earlier, um, we, we asked non-Christians the kinds of things that they would want to have um, the qualities of a good person to talk about faith with and the number one quality was listening without judgment hmm. um, and and that's that's it sort of sounds like it's counterintuitive to evangelism right like cuz evangelism is like i'm going to tell you what i believe so yeah. that you can become yeah. a christian right. but listening without judgment not forcing a conclusion allowing others to draw their own conclusions um, demonstrating interest in the other person's story or their life, um, even being confident in in sharing their own faith perspective, is ranked as the top one of the top five. But it wasn't. It, it, it it's like it's within the context of hospitality, right? So uh, people really do feel um, when they have been listened to or heard. And actually, this was something I actually heard one of my college professors say early on that I've just, it's just one of the, the truest things I've ever experienced was that when you go to dinner or have time with a friend, um, or a person you're getting to know, he said, he said, the one thing you'll really notice is that if you enjoy yourself, that person asks you a lot of questions about your life and experience. Mm-hmm. And there's a real hosp- like hospitable approach to saying, I'm not just here to talk about what I'm doing, what I'm experiencing, what I think. Um, and, and, and conversely, if you're with a person and you're like, man, that was a draining time. (laughs)
3: Um,
2: they, they just spent a lot of time talking about themselves. Now, I mean, I've been with people that are super interesting and they're, they have interesting stories. They talk, they're, 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 you know, but they're also super interested in who you are. And I think Mm -hmm. that's part of the posture that this generation is really looking for. Um, they're not looking for one-sided, you know, uh, sort of, um, rigid conversations that are sort of formulas about how you might lead someone to Christ that may be the ultimate end and they would love to see that happen in most cases Uh, but they want to see that come out of this sort of hospitable uh, conversational respectful place Um, and it's just a really cool little rule of thumb like if you if you want to be a good friend to people if you want to have people enjoy your company you have to work really hard um, at asking questions. And I just like, sometimes when I'm traveling for work or different things, like I, I'm, i find myself like, I'm so tired. I don't, I don't yeah. actually really, I don't even really want to ask you any questions yeah. about yourself. Cause I know that I have to like listen and respond. And, um, the words of my professor just remind me like, the echo back. It's like, well, it depends on what you think, what you're hoping that person might think of you at the end. And, and, uh, so it's a, it's a, a very true principle I, I found.
1: So we're, what we're seeing here is that while Francis Schaefer was absolutely correct that our faith is propositional that it, mm-hmm. it has some reason behind it and as Norm Geisler said it we have a reasonable faith but it it does go beyond reason into a mystery having said all that faith uh, our, our our gospel is not only propositional it's also incarnational that's right and so there's a relationship between you and this other person and if that relationship is not going anywhere if if, if, if i don 't if the person doesn't have a feeling or an experience that I actually care about them as a person, we really don't get very far.
3: Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I was at a coffee shop yesterday and I decided to test this theory, David, of what you guys were in your research. And so I struck up a conversation with a gal, and um, she, she was, I had a book out on my table that was about evangelism of all things. And she's like, evangelism. Not my cup of tea, and so we began chatting, and uh, you know she said, "Hey, I'm an atheist," and kind of told me a little bit of her story. And I said, "Hey, can I actually you some? I'm a pastor here in town." And she goes, "I don't want to come to your church." I said, "No, no, 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 no." I said, uh, "If you were to get all the evangelical pastors in Dallas together in one room, you could tell them, you can give them one piece of advice. What would you give them?" And she thought about it, and she really was being thoughtful, and she goes, "Huh, listen to people's stories and don't give unsolicited advice." And I was like. Well, there you, there you go. David's research might be <laughs> spot on. So I gave her my business card. I said, hey, I'd love to get to know you better. And she goes, okay, I'll call you. And it was just this really, uh, it was a sweet moment for me of just going, okay, the investment in this in this gal is clearly going to be more than a five-minute interaction at a local Starbucks. Um, but it's I say I would say, David, the, the research you guys are putting out is so helpful that people can be confident that to take the time to, to say, okay, I'll have a follow-up and then a follow-up and then a follow-up and who knows where it'll go and who knows if she'll call. But the, the willingness to do that hopefully will demystify some of this for folks and go, do you have time to grab a cup of coffee? Then I think you can engage in evangelism for this new wave of folks that we're seeing coming through.
1: Well our time is about to shot. but David, if people do want to get a hold of that research uh, very quickly, just a uh, uh, what's the web address for Barna?
2: yeah, Barna. com and um, yeah, you can get uh, all we, we've met, we mentioned two or three different studies today called Reviving evangelism, Spiritual Conversations in the Digital Age. Uh, we did a one with the seed company that uh, Nika mentioned earlier. Uh, That was the one where 51% of churchgoers don't know what the meaning of the phrase Great Commission is. Uh, That one's called Translating the Great Commission. Um, And uh, we've just got a lot of different resources that I think will be very helpful for people as they're trying to understand culture. That's our job is to be Issachar, understand the times, know what to do, give leaders insights into the changing demographics so you can minister and lead and think more effectively.
1: Well, and that's why we asked you to be on this uh, podcast today, David. You guys do an incredible job, mm-hmm. and thank you for the work that you do. So that's Barna.com. I thank you for joining us today and bringing your insights yeah. uh, from your day-to-day work with uh, with this topic. A new vision for sharing Christ. Again, Bill Hendricks, uh, Executive Director for Christian Leadership uh, for The Table podcast. If you have a topic you'd like us to consider for future Episode, please email us at the at DTS.edu. We'll see you again.
0: Thanks for listening to the Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit DTS.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well.